We are looking at Mark chapter 6, verse 1 to verse 6. The outline that you would have got as you came in, it says the rejection of Jesus. The rejection of Jesus. Now last year, uh, actors, writers, and uh, would-be romantic poets uh, were sharing online their experiences of being rejected. Uh, This was trending on Twitter, uh, and it had the hashtag, share your rejections. And the actress, Anna Perks, uh, reflected that her rejection is a big part of her acting career. Uh, She said 90% of the jobs that she goes for, you don't even hear back from them. 90% are no's, definite no's. And the last 1% are invitation to come for auditions. Rejection is painful, isn't it? It it makes us feel shunned. We feel ignored, right? It's like you don't exist. You feel like you don't exist. Uh, It can leave us feeling worthless, like we are idiots or something. It can make us feel ashamed whenever we are rejected. In any area, whether it's just the boss firing us or just people, friends withdrawing from us, it is painful to be rejected. No one wants to be rejected. Which is why, when we think about the life of Jesus, I don't know about you, but when I think about it, it puzzles me. It puzzles me because as we're going through Mark, we see that our Lord Jesus is a rejected man. It seems that as Jesus spends more time with people, he's, he's finding himself that they are at war with him. Everything is at war with Jesus. Even the wind and the sea. In Mark chapter 3, if you may remember, we saw the Pharisees and the Herodians, they go off to plot, they've gone off to plot the death of Jesus. They've already made up their minds about him. He's going down as far as they're concerned. His family has already dismissed Jesus as a madman. They've already rejected him. The people of the garrisons we saw in chapter 5 have already drawn a line in the sand. They told Jesus, go away. We don't want to see you here. And we see now the town of Nazareth is about to join them in this. That should raise questions immediately, isn't it, as we read through Mark. Why is Jesus facing so much rejection? Why do people reject Jesus? And what does this rejection we're seeing in Mark teach us about what might be our attitude toward Jesus? Are we rejecting Jesus in some way? And for those of us who believe we are followers of Jesus, we, does this rejection of Jesus have anything to teach us about the rejection we face in our own lives as we seek to follow Jesus? Well, these are just some of the many questions I wanted to explore this evening. Uh, and please turn with me there to verse 1 of, of Mark chapter 6, verse 1 to 6. That's the passage we are looking at. And there are three truths in front of your outline. I just want you to uh, on your outline, that I just want us to explore about the rejection of Jesus. The rejection of Jesus. The first thing we observe in this passage uh, is that Jesus faces unexpected rejection. Unexpected rejection. So he's on the move again, Jesus. Uh, he has been in Capernaum or around that area, around the Sea of Galilee. And now he's heading 25 miles southwest, right? to his own village in Nazareth. Let's read this one. 
he went away from there and came to his own town. I should just pause there. That is, Jesus is going to his own town. Now, I hope all of us have a hometown, right? We should. Everybody, every human being does. And many of us know going back to hometown can bring a lot of joy. Many of us know the joy of going back to our old roots, where we grew up, where we were born, to see old friends perhaps who are still around. And we like going back to our hometowns, especially when things are going well in our lives. I mean, we like to go back so that people we knew can see us that we have now made it. But actually, not everybody likes going back to their hometown. And many people are actually ashamed of their background. The racing driver, Lewis Hamilton, as you may know, has been, was in the news uh, two weeks ago, I think, or two or three weeks ago, or perhaps before that, maybe like a month ago. Uh, because he, he, he comes from Stevenage, doesn't he? And he was in the news because he said he called Stevenage the slums. And so the town of Stevenage, they are not very happy with um, Lewis Hamilton because they think he looks down on his roots. They think he's ashamed of Stevenage. Some people are ashamed of their background, where they come from. And I think if anyone has a reason to be ashamed of his background, it should be Jesus. Jesus has every reason to be ashamed of his background. Because he comes from Nazareth. It is a small town. It is a town of nobodies. In fact, Nazareth is so small, it's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. You won't find any single mention of Nazareth. And Nathaniel, one of the disciples of Jesus, when he, before he met Jesus, you remember what he said about Nazareth when he heard Jesus is from Nazareth. In John chapter 1, verse 46, he asked this question, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip answered him, Come and see. Come and see. You see, at this time, the reason Nathaniel was so puzzled is that the Nazarenes are scorned and despised. People who come from Nazareth are scorned and despised people. It is the last place you want to take your besties. It's the last place you want to take your friends if you come from Nazareth. But we see here that Jesus is taking his disciples home with him. Let's read on this one. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. That's important. Jesus is not going alone. He's taking his new family in God home. Because he's not ashamed of where he comes from. He is saying, look, this is where, this is home for me. This is who I am. This is my background. These are my friends I knew growing up. What about you? Are you ashamed of your background? Maybe you might say, no, I'm not ashamed of my background. And for many of us, that might be true. We are not ashamed of our background. But are you ashamed of your current family circumstances? Because you see, Jesus is taking people home. Are you afraid of your home? Are you, are you ashamed of your home environment? That might puzzle some of you to think, why would I be ashamed of my home environment? But I think a lot of people are ashamed of their home environments. 
I say this because I think one of the reasons many of us don't even invite people in our homes. I've been thinking about this, as you know. I'm obsessed with the idea that to live redemptively as a community is not simply meeting for the Lord's table. The Lord's table, yes, it shows us we're family, but we show we're family when we open up our full lives with one another. And as you know, I encourage us to open up our homes and, and meet, uh, encourage people to visit us. I've been thinking about this issue, and, and I think the reason many of us don't open up our homes in that way is not because we are selfish or we are too busy. That's, that's possible. But I think a large reason is that many of us don't invite people into our homes because we feel ashamed. We feel ashamed that if people come to our homes, they might judge us for how we live. We think to ourselves, look, I am messy, so I have to clean up just to have people around. If they come and it's messy, it's not going to look good on me, is it? My children may not behave very well. I'll be embarrassed. And that's not going to go down well. And, And what happens if they come into my home and they see that painting over there? It doesn't look very Christian, does it? They might judge me for that. And my wife, well, she's not yet a follower of Jesus. What if she swears? Well, they are right. Shame varies, doesn't it? Shame is what stops God's people from opening up their lives to others, especially their home environment. And so we must ask ourselves here, Jesus is opening up his home. Are you opening up your life? Are you willing for people in the fellowship to come to your Nazareth, to your home? I just want to pause here to note that Jesus at the moment has been living as a homeless man. You've got to get that. He has had no home. He has been just lodging, a free lodger. He could be on the streets, but Peter has put him up. And now he's going home. He's taking his people to where he comes from. And the question we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to have people come to our Nazareth? Or are we too ashamed to take them there? If you're a follower of Jesus, he's setting the template here for you. He's hoping himself up to others. And we need to do the same. So Jesus is now in Nazareth, we see here. And on the first Saturday, uh, he heads to the chapel for fellowship and teaching, doesn't he? And everyone is blown away. Let's look at this too. And on the Sabbath, they began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Why did this man get these things? Why is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works or miracles done by his hands? They've heard about it. Now, I don't know about you, but when I listen or watch an inventor say, talk about their work on TED Talks, right? Or one of these programs. When I listen to them talk about their invention, they speak with such authority. It's spellbinding. Of course it is. Why? Because they're talking about something they know very well. They, they made it, or they've come up with an idea. They've understood it, and when they talk about it, they're talking with authority, with passion. They're so excited about it. Now imagine now, God, our creator, talking to you in person. The God who knows your feelings. He knows your thoughts. He knows your ideas. It must be amazing hearing God the Son, Jesus, in person. 
As I thought about this, what a wonderful thing it must have been that day to sit under the authority, the teaching, the preaching of Jesus. What I would give just to hear the Lord preach to me in person. And I thought about that. I can't wait to hear him in person in heaven. I can't wait to sit under his teaching in heaven. In the new heavens and new earth to see my Lord face to face as he's appearing here in the synagogue. As he's talking here, imagine everyone has their mouth open. They're like, who's this guy? This is special. We must put it on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And another person says, look, I wish dad was here. Finally, a preacher to keep him awake. Grandma, if she was here, finally she would find repentance. There is great excitement as Jesus preaches. But then someone asks a question. Look at the question in verse 3. It's going well, but then someone has a question. Uh, I have a question. Are you not the carpenter, the son of Mary? We pause there. That's the question. Is not this, perhaps they're turning to each other. What are we here? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? We just pause there. It sounds innocent enough, isn't it? By the way, in this society, a carpenter doesn't just work with wood. A carpenter actually could be a stone mason. So, and actually, some people think that Jesus worked with buildings because actually illustrations he gives in the scriptures come mainly, mainly from that sort of thing. And so actually, a carpenter isn't the way we tend to think of it today. But they're asking that question. The issue is the son of Mary there. They, they say they call him the son of Mary. Now, the thing you need to be aware of that in this society, it is not normal to call someone by their mother's name. Even if the father is dead, as many people think has happened to Joseph, the normal way always is to refer, the normal way, there are exceptions sometimes, even in scripture, but the normal way in this culture is to refer someone by their father's name. They are calling him the son of Mary by purpose here, I think. And the reason they are calling him the son of Mary is to remind him of his birth. They purposely leave Joseph out, humanly speaking, not because they believe in the incarnation. No, they want to make it clear, you are the son of Mary. All we know is Mary. We don't even know. We can't even believe Joseph. We can't even think of Joseph. And the reason they are saying that is that they are taunting him. That is an illegitimate child born to a whore. They remember is the scandal of his birth. They don't believe in the incarnation. They just believe Mary, you know, knocked herself up as it were. And in case Jesus does not get it, they make it clear that they know him and he's nothing. He's a nobody. So he should keep quiet. Let's read on this. Verse 3, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? They are saying, look, if anyone should know who you are, it is us. You are a nobody, an illegitimate child. Even your half-sisters have turned up here and are here to prove it. Ask them. That's why they're saying the sisters are present there. They have rejected Jesus, and Mark now makes it plainly to us. Let's read on verse 3. And they took offense at him. 
The original word there for offense is scandalous. And it can mean they stumbled at Jesus, or they, fall, they fell away from Jesus, or they were deeply offended. It actually means the three things. All the three things have happened. They have stumbled at him, they've had enough of him, and they're deeply offended by him. The people of Nazareth have examined their relative, and they want to say point blank to Jesus, look, go away. We don't want you here. You've had enough. And that's the clue, isn't it? Because why have they rejected Jesus like this? Why? I think the most likely reason is that they don't like his sermons, actually. Mark does not tell us what Jesus is preaching here, but he makes it clear that Jesus is preaching. And it's in the course of him preaching that they reject him. What is Jesus preaching? Well, Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 15. Mark never tells what Jesus is preaching because we already know. He's already summarized up front in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 15. Now, after John was arrested, he says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God, and saying what? The Kairos moment. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is preaching repentance. And it's hard for them. In fact, Mark tells us later on, if we flip back to chapter 6, if you just look at chapter 6 and you scan verse 12, notice first of all that Jesus sends out the disciples after this event to go and preach. What are they preaching? Well, the same message Jesus is preaching. Look at verse 12 of Mark chapter 6. So they went out and proclaimed that people should do what? Should repent. Repent. They should turn around, metanoia, experience transformation in in their lives. That's what he's preaching. You see, friends, if Jesus has come pampering their sins, they would invite Jesus into their homes. And they would throw a party for the boy who has made it big. But Jesus is saying, I have come, I am God, and you must repent or you perish in, in your sins forever. Regardless of who you are, brother or sister, mom, granddad, childhood friend or not, you must repent. And you know, close friends of Jesus who we grew up with are hearing that, why? How dare you tell us to repent? They don't like it. It puzzles us, doesn't it? I hope it puzzles you because when I looked at this, it puzzled me because I expect people who know Jesus so well to accept him. But they don't. They suffer from a proximity problem. Sometimes if something is, you know, you have those puzzles, don't you? Where you stare at them so closely, you can't see what's going on. And then you take them very far, then ah, the picture is clear. They have a proximity problem. Familiarity breeds contempt. And as I thought about this, I said this passage is for the church, actually, in Mark. It's intended for those of us who are familiar with Jesus. That's a direct application of this passage. This passage is not about the world. The world doesn't know Jesus. It is for those of us who have grown up, attended church for years. Those of us who are putting mileage in church time. You have perhaps sat in this church since you were young, or you are 
late in life and you believe you've been working with Jesus for 30, 40, 50 years. This passage is for you. Because in this passage, Jesus is asking you, are you offended at Jesus? We might think, why would Jesus ask that? Why would this passage ask of us this question? But it is asking you a very specific question. Does the preaching of Jesus offend you? Does it offend you that Jesus sees your sin and he sees the sinfulness of your sin and he's talking about it? Do you as a person get offended when you hear sin preached about in this fellowship? Do you want to avoid any talk of hell? It's just too much for you. The idea of demons and angels and, and, and that we are war and we need deliverance is a too much for you. Serious question. We need to examine ourselves in these issues. We need to examine ourselves, especially as we advance in years. Someone has said we are either growing better, listen to me, we are either growing better or we are growing bitter. That's the trajectory as we advance in years. And I think it's a trajectory as we sit in church. We are either softening to the things of God or we are hardening to the things of God. The more we know of Jesus, we are either drawn by his wonder, his grace, his love for us, or we say, no, no, Jesus, this is too much. This is too much. Now, of course, we never walk out, but our hearts close, don't they? It just close for him. So we must ask ourselves, are we becoming better in allowing the full force of the word of God to shape our lives? And we must ask ourselves as a church, are we growing in allowing the word of God to shape us as a church? Because if we are not, then of course we are not different from this community in Nazareth. We are rejecting collectively Christ. We are harboring rejection of Christ. And actually it is unexpected rejection. We don't expect it because we think we are already in Christ. But no, we are familiar and we are really re with Christ, but we've truly rejected him. And the reason why this matters is because of the second point. The first point is that Jesus faces unexpected rejection. The second point why this matters is that Jesus faces painful rejection. It pains the Lord that people reject him. The people of Nazareth have stripped Jesus naked with their words. In front of his disciples, he's been rejected in front of his best friends. Don't miss that. How will our Lord Jesus respond to this rejection? With honest words, painful words. Look at verse 4. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor. A prophet is not without honor, except in his own home and among his relatives and in his own household. Jesus is admitting that he has been cut to the stomach. He feels dishonored. He's making it clear that he has not received the honor at this occasion. He's saying their words have left him feeling violated, 
dishonored, emotionally wounded. You know, I remember sharing Jesus in the Broadway with a couple sometime last year, and they were so rude. And as I remember this moment even now, the way they reacted to me, I felt like they thought I was just pure scum. It was quite painful, actually, at that moment, the rejection. But they were strangers, you see, so as pained as I was, I moved on, right, to the next person, <laughs> right? But Jesus is facing something worse here. This is personal rejection. And remember, this is not Bexley Eath, this is the ancient Near East. It's not Bexley Eath where we never even talk to people sharing the checkout with us in Sainsbury's, right? If they are rude to us, well, it's just our life is. Jesus is living in a collectivist culture. The family bonds are stronger than in our Western society. The village is like an extended family. So Jesus has been rejected by people he knows and who know him so well. This must be so crushing for our Lord. And we shouldn't downplay that because remember that Jesus is 100% God, yes, but he's also 100% human. And also remember that Jesus, is, even though he's God, is living his life as fully man, dependent on the Holy Spirit. He's not drawing on his divine privilege. If you like, the pain of rejection is coming with full force, with no inhibition. He feels the pain of human rejection. He feels the rejection from his own household, he says here. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. He's admitting, you are my people, but you have dishonored me here. I thought about it and I thought, Jesus knows what it feels like to have your own family reject you because you love God more than them. Because you have put God first in everything. Jesus knows the pain of that. Jesus actually knows the pain of living in a broken family. To have brothers and sisters at your throat saying in front of everyone you love, you are not like us. He knows that. And if you are in Jesus, this should encourage you because Jesus does not deserve to be treated like this. He is holy, he's perfect, he's loving, he's good. Jesus actually is powerful enough to even avoid this rejection. He is God. He can just punish them. But Jesus is choosing to not do any of that. He's choosing to embrace the rejection. Why? Why? Why is the Lord doing this? Because Jesus is suffering this shame and abuse for you and I. Jesus is willing to be abused, dishonored, that you might be saved and honored. And all this rejection we are saying is Jesus is going to continue all the way to the cross. All the way to the cross that Jesus, until on that cross, Jesus will embrace rejection. He will stand in your place. He will take on all the mess for you. There on the cross, Jesus actually will embrace rejection, not from us. It's there as well, because we now, you know, we are all there nailing him to the cross, but you embrace rejection from God. When the sky is darkened, when the wrath of God is poured on him, 
You'll be separated from the Father for, 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 for a moment. Mysteriously so. Rejection not from everything else, including God himself. And he does that for you and I. He is separated, he's rejected from God, by God, on the cross, so that we may have life with God. As Shannock says, Stephen Shannock, the love of Christ opened his breast to receive into his own heart the sharp edge of that sword which was directed against us. Beloved, can't you see? How can we, this is the point, how can we who have such a savior tolerate any end of sin? How can we who have such a savior who has been rejected for us carry on loving sin? Rejecting him? How can we not even want to hear talk of, of the importance of repentance? How can we not take hell seriously? We can't. That's the answer. Those who truly know Jesus do not join his human family in rejecting him. Rather, those who know Jesus grow in hating sin. We love people who remind us to repent. We make every opportunity to hear us being reminded of repentance as we are doing here this evening. If we are comfortable with sin, if we don't prioritize sitting under the preaching of the word of God, we are willfully rejecting Jesus. We are drowning, let's not kid ourselves, in the sea of unbelief. And that brings us to the last truth. Jesus doesn't just face unexpected rejection. Jesus faces, or, and Jesus doesn't just face painful rejection, the second point. Jesus also faces willful rejection. Notice here that Jesus has spoken, and I think I was expecting Jesus just to go now. But actually, Mark tells us that Jesus still stays around to do more work. But to Jesus' own surprise, right, people do not even want his miracles. Amazing. Only a few of them come to Jesus. They have written him off, and frankly, they don't even want to be healed by him. Here is how Mark records it in Mark chapter 5, Mark chapter 6, verse 5 to 6. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. The key point is in verse 5. The and is connecting us to, to verse 4. Because they have rejected him, because they have dishonored him, and consistent with their dishonor, Jesus is unable to do work here. Because frankly, the people do not want him to. They are refusing even to come to him for healing. It's not because Jesus can't heal. If they come, they will. They'll get healed because Jesus has come to draw to the trouble. But they are refusing. And by refusing physical healing, what they're doing is really they are cutting themselves off from experiencing the power of God in their life, in this life. They don't want God's help at all. Physical or spiritual. 
Now we have to remember as we go through Mark that what we've been learning about the miracles of Jesus. The physical miracles are meant to symbolize the deeper spiritual miracle that Jesus brings through his death and resurrection. So actually by the people of Nazareth rejecting the physical miracles, they are forfeiting any hope of that future spiritual miracle. They have actually rejected any hope of healing from sin. And we should be aware that this event in Mark is the second time Jesus is actually rejected in Nazareth. The first time is in Luke chapter 4, verse 16 to 31. You can look that up in your own time. And this is the last time, by the way, that Jesus is going to be in Nazareth. He's been here, he's taught them, they've rejected him, and he's not coming back. He's just marvels because of their unbelief. And this passage, therefore, is warning us here that those of us who are familiar with Jesus, we, the churched people, it is warning us not to be guilty of willfully and wastefully rejecting Jesus. I can't emphasize enough that in the Bible, Jesus is only surprised by two things. Only two things surprises Jesus. You can read the Bible for yourself, the Gospels. Only two things puzzles Jesus. True faith, as we see when Jesus reacts to the centurion or the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, verse 28. Some, Jesus sometimes is, is always surprised when somebody shows true faith that he doesn't expect. Or unbelief, as we see here. And so, the question for you as we come to, to the end is, when Jesus looks at you, what is Jesus surprised with about you? He's looking at you this evening. What surprises him? Is it your true faith in Jesus? I think of the parables we looked at in chapter 4. Does Jesus see a small seed growing more and more and, and, and thorns growing less and less declining? Is Jesus surprised by your true faith? Or is Jesus surprised that despite all the preaching you have heard, all the Bibles you own at home, all the internet sermons, you have missed him? You have religion, yes, just like these people in Nazareth. They went to the synagogue that day. They did. They turned up to church. And you have that. I'm sure they heard the scriptures expounded by other rabbis before, so they were enlightened about the Messiah. And you have that. You, you know what it means to be born again. And yet, does Jesus look at you, marveling all of that stuff, all that knowledge, and you still have never bowed the knee to me? All the resources have pushed you away. You still put other things ahead of me. Family, education, reputation, wealth. Personal entertainment. You have willfully rejected Jesus. Jesus is looking at you. Is he looking at you and saying, you know what I demand. You know what salvation means. But you've come to believe you are the exception. 
you think somehow I will define for you what true faith is. Beloved, is Jesus looking at you surprised at your unbelief? Or is he looking at you surprised that you have true faith? I think that surprises Jesus because he knows we are humanly speaking. This world is aligned against God. And true faith, it takes joy in that, doesn't it? This evening, God is giving each one of us an opportunity to carefully and honestly, painfully ask ourselves, in what way is Jesus surprised with me? We must ask ourselves that. And also, let us examine ourselves as a fellowship. When Jesus looks at this church, what is Jesus surprised with about us? Let's be honest. Is Jesus surprised at our faith? Evidenced in a deep thirst for prayer and winning souls? Gathering together at the Lord's table, this eschatological meal? He sees that we value these things. He sees some evidence of a real church among us. And he's surprised at our faith. Or is Jesus surprised at our faithlessness, evidenced by corporate prayerlessness? Despite all the privileges, all the blessings that Jesus has given this fellowship for over 195 years, is Jesus surprised at our lack of faith? Is he saying, look how many pastors have sent you. Look how much resources I've given you. Look how many members I've given you. Look at the harvest around you. Is he looking at us and saying, what unbelief? It is a sobering question, isn't it? And one which is a pastor almost drives me to my knees and in weeping before Christ. And which we as members must prayerfully reflect on. Because we've been placed here for a reason. We must ask is our faith corporately real? Are we really a church trusting in Jesus? We have a Savior who has embraced rejection even from his family for us. Well, may the Lord help us to truly love him as he loves us. To have a genuine face of love towards him. And not merely a mask that hides rejection. We know what happens to those who wear a face perhaps of cheer greeting. I'm sure when Jesus walked in, in Nazareth, he got good greetings. But underneath, they were hiding, hiding deep unbelief. And Mark 6 ends that he went on to do other work elsewhere. For us as a church, the question is, perhaps Jesus has already removed the lampstand. Who knows? We must come to him openly and in prayer.